now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with sure, you sure i want you to i be. wanted to uh i wanted to always play it down i still like playing it down yes sir. because i don't want to create a panic that was President Trump talking to journalist Bob Woodward on March 19th, admitting that he deliberately played down the severity of the coronavirus because, he said, I don't want to create a panic. So in his efforts to calm the American public, it seems Trump made comments that he knows to have been untrue, that the virus would disappear when the weather starts to warm or that the threat of COVID was no greater than the common flu. Was this calming the public or lying to the public and endangering the health and lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans who listened and acted on what he had to say? We'll get reaction to these comments from Trump's former national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton, and from Dr. Lena Wen, the former health commissioner of the city of Baltimore and a professor of health policy at George Washington University on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So there is so much to talk about with these Woodward bombshells, and they do seem like uh, bombshells. But I, I just want to start out with a comment I just saw on Twitter. You know, Bob Woodward uh, became world famous as the Watergate reporter whose reporting was vindicated by the tapes that Richard Nixon made. Now, here we are so many years later, and Woodward is making the tapes himself that... Uh, uh, implicate uh, the president. Uh, it's quite the irony. It's a, it's a great point. And Nixon never expected the tapes to become public. He fought a battle to the Supreme Court to prevent them from being public. Donald Trump, <laughs> on the other hand, yeah. wanted them to be public, apparently. Right, right. <laughs> and look, just to, just to be clear on the timeline here, and because there's a series of tapes that lead up to that sort of devastating smoking gun tape, I just wanted to uh, avoid a panic from the American public, or I didn't want to create a panic. On January 31st, so this is like six weeks or seven weeks before this, Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, briefs Trump and tells him the coronavirus 
about the coronavirus, this will be the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency. Uh, Matt Pottinger, his deputy, uh, agrees and tells Trump that after reaching out to contacts in China, it was evident the world faced a health emergency on par with the flu pandemic of 1918, which killed an estimated 50 million people. And then on February 7th, so that's you know a week after Trump is briefed. Trump is telling Woodward how serious this is. You just breathe the air, and that's how it's passed. It's a very tricky one. It's very delicate. It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flu. This is deadly stuff, Trump says on tape to Woodward. That same day, <laughs> that same day, Trump is on Twitter saying, calming the public uh, as the weather starts to warm and the virus hopefully becomes weaker, it will be gone. Great discipline is taking place in China as President Xi strongly leads what will be a very successful operation. We are working closely with China to help. And then in the weeks that follow, you know, are all of Trump's other comments about how, no, I'm not concerned at all, he says on March 7th about the COVID pandemic on March 9th. Ninth, he is comparing it to the flu. So last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu. It averages between 27,000 and 70,000 per year. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. At this moment, there are only 546 confirmed cases of coronavirus. Think about that, exclamation point. So the precise opposite of what he is saying publicly, he is admitting to Woodward, this is not the common flu, this is far more deadly, this is far more serious, and yet he doesn't share that with the American public. And well, not only does he not share it with the, the American public, the problem is he is acting on the part that he knows is not true. I mean, it'd be one. Th- it would be one thing if he was saying this is going to go away and I'm, you know, trying to calm the American public, but then doing the things you actually need to do to mitigate the spread of this virus, to save lives, whether it's ramping up testing or enforcing uh, other mitigation tactics like social distancing and the wearing of masks. But he resisted all of that because when he lies, he is, it is also an exercise in trying to convince himself that everything's going to be fine because he's the greatest leader of all time. And, you know, it's, you know, look, we can spend eternity trying to psychoanalyze this president, but the really important thing is the consequences of this bizarre conduct. And in this particular case, and we'll ask John Bolton about this, in this particular case, I think there's a pretty credible case to be made that it had catastrophic and deadly effects. So I guess the question is, does this cut politically? Does this cut politically? Does it, how much does it hurt Trump in this election campaign? I think this, we've said this on this podcast many, many times, many other people have said this. uh, This is still an election about the coronavirus pandemic. We are close to 200,000 Americans perishing from this virus. Americans are still living in fear. It is part of people's everyday lives. I think there are a lot of other things that won't cut politically and that, you know, are here today and gone tomorrow in this 
a strange presidency, this is the one that is persistent because it is pervasive, because it affects all of us. And let's remember, this is the week that for millions of Americans, they are reminded of how much the COVID uh, pandemic is disrupting our lives because it's the week that kids have gone back to school all across the country. For many, they started a couple of weeks ago. And in most cases, it's virtual schooling. The kids are at home sitting in front of screens, not in classrooms, not with teachers, not with their classmates. And uh, it's a reminder for everybody of uh, just how, uh, what an upheaval the COVID pandemic has been. And I think when people read this and hear Trump's comments, uh, it's going to, uh, you know, I think this does cut um, politically. the The things that are most devastating for presidents, you know, are the things that the American people that are most easily understood, that are kind of just simplest in their in their nature. And in this particular one was, there was a very, very deadly disease spreading through the country. The president completely downplayed it. Um, he said it was going to go away. Now he's saying he knew that wasn't the case. But he we know he knew it wasn't the case. But we, we, and we, he was saying in real yeah, time. Yeah. This is not hard for people to understand. And that's what I think is going to make it so dangerous for him politically. A couple of a lot of news breaking left and right this week. Uh, And uh, just as we started uh, taping this podcast, we got news on another front that a a new whistleblower has stepped forward to report to Congress political influence on intelligence. Brian Murphy, who is the acting undersecretary for intelligence at the Department of Homeland Security, has filed a whistleblower complaint. I, I cannot remember a whistleblower complaint coming from somebody that high up, a uh, undersecretary of, no, I mean, uh, of usually, Homeland Security. We, we, yeah. we have we have covered dozens and dozens of whistleblower cases. They are almost, they are usually people like working in, toiling away in the bowels of, of the bureaucracy, anonymous figures, sometimes literally anonymous, like in the case of the Ukraine whistleblower. Here, here we're talking about someone um, who was, you know, going to National, Sec- you know, National Security Council meetings that was, you know, at the very top echelons uh, of, of the government. Uh, I got to say, by the way, just to tell you, tells you something about the news environment that we are uh, going through right now. The idea that on the day that Bob Woodward drops his bombshell book that has all these, you know, huge scoops and re- really important stories, that there would be another story <laughs> that uh, you know rivaling, you know, the importance of a Bob Woodward scoop is, right, is right, uh, right. You know, just and and look just very briefly. There's a lot to this whistleblower complaint, and who, by the way, is being represented by Mark Zaid, a skullduggery guest. Uh, he's also the lawyer, the Washington National Security lawyer, who represented the whistleblower in the Ukraine impeachment saga. But uh, Brian Murphy alleges in this whistleblower complaint that he was instructed by Chad Wolf 
Wolf, who's the acting secretary of uh, Homeland Security, to stop providing intelligence assessments on the threat of Russian interference in the United States and instead start reporting on interference activities by China and Iran. Uh, Wolf stated these instructions specifically originated from the aforementioned Robert O'Brien, the White House National Security Advisor, who succeeded John Bolton. Murphy informed Mr. Wolf, according to the complaint, that he would not comply with these instructions, as doing so would put the country in substantial and specific and, danger. Uh, and, what, and what was the very high-minded reason that Chad Wolf instructed Murphy that it would not, make, it not would to make the president look bad, <laughs> right? So there you go, <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, it seems like uh, there's plenty that fits that category uh, right now. So we should um, get some uh, interesting reaction. But before we do, just a reminder to our Skullduggery listeners that uh, our new Conspiracy Land series has been running all week, three episodes. This is about another crazy uh, incident in Donald Trump's presidency when he was uh, sliming a media critic, Joe Scarborough, accusing him of murder. We've got uh, first ever interviews with the uh, widower of the woman whose Trump has alleged Scarborough had murdered. And it's uh, some really powerful stuff and a lot of also tough questions anybody listening to this will have for Twitter and how they continue to circulate a lot of the falsehoods that the president... Yeah, I just want to repeat what I said the other day on the podcast, which is it is often difficult to um, absorb all of the flood of outrages and like news that this president makes. But sometimes it is really important to kind of just freeze the moment and kind of do a deep dive into one particular episode that is representative of a lot of the problems (laughs) that we've been facing here and challenges. And this is a really good example of that. It is very important because the fallout from it, you know, the pain and the suffering falls on a uh, just an average American, the widower of Lori Klesudis. So very important uh, piece of journalism. Everyone ought to tune in. All right. On that note, uh, we got uh, two good guests. Let's get right to it. We now have with us Ambassador John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor to President Trump, author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, still on the bestseller list, I see. Ambassador, welcome to Skullduggery. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. So uh, a busy news day, as it turns out, because another book is just coming out, Bob Woodward, with tapes of his multiple conversations with President Trump, including about the COVID pandemic. And uh, some are getting uh, quite a bit of attention right now, including Trump on tape telling Woodward as late as March 19th, I wanted to always play it down. I didn't want to create a panic. What's your reaction to that? Uh, I'm not surprised by it at all. I I discussed it a little bit in my book, but my publication date required that I get it out sooner than than, uh, Woodward, and I wasn't there myself. But it was very clear to me that uh, Trump didn't want to hear anything bad about this disease, didn't want to hear anything bad about his friend 
Xi Jinping didn't want to draw any conclusions about China covering up or conducting a disinformation campaign, and he particularly did not want to hear that something bad might happen to the economy here in the United States that he saw as his ticket for re-election. So as the Woodward book tells it, at least as our television commentators tell us, he is being told in January, and others have said the same thing, by the NSC staff, by the Centers for Disease Control, this is a serious problem, and Trump just wanted it to go away. Ambassador, we're going to hit 200,000 deaths possibly in the next week or two. Given all of that, given what you just said, given what Bob Woodward's reporting, um, how much responsibility do you think President Trump bears for how bad this got? And could we have prevented some, if not many, of these deaths? Well, obviously, we can never know what the counterfactual reality would be. But I would say, not to tout my own book, but I would say that the way Trump handled the coronavirus crisis was typical of the way he handled uh, national security matters across the board. He, he never developed a strategy. He doesn't develop strategies. He doesn't think in strategic terms. He doesn't think in philosophical terms. He doesn't think in policy terms. Everything is a day-to-day -day decision. And the main factor that, that moves his decisions are how those decisions will affect him politically. So don't take Woodward as the sole source. The New York Times has reported that in early January, the NSC and others were raising concerns about the disease. He deliberately did nothing. And we've got dozens of statements on the record by him, by his top advisors, saying it's nothing to worry about it. It's under control. It's going to magically disappear. The economy's not going to be affected by it. I mean, people have lists running into the dozens of those kinds of comments in the first quarter of the year. Now, had Trump sat down at the NSC or any government forum he wanted and said, what's our strategy? What are we going to do? When are we going to get a vaccine? What are the metrics? Da, 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 da. I could go right down the list, testing, tracing, you, you name it. Then maybe things would have been different. One hopes that planning, thinking, organized behavior can mitigate things like pandemics. If it doesn't, then I don't, I don't know what hope we have. But we didn't do any of that. Ambassador, so just to be, be quite pointed on this, when the president tells Woodward, I didn't want to create a panic, do you take him at his word at that? Do you think that was his real motivation or it was he didn't want to say things that might upset his electoral chances? Well, clearly it's the second. Look, a leader is candid with his followers. He doesn't want to scare them unduly, for sure, but he doesn't want to sugarcoat it either. A real leader knows how to communicate. We've got a serious problem here, and we're going to address it seriously. That doesn't cause a panic among the American people. They're not children. But Trump knew that if he were truly candid about the nature of the threat we faced and what might have to happen, that he would bear negative consequences. I think he thought he could skate through this with almost no effect on the economy, whatever. It turned out to be a bad bet. It turned out to be a worse bet for nearly 200,000 Americans. Just to close the loop on this, I know that you, as you say, you can't prove a counterfactual, but does your gut tell you that if he had handled this in the way that you suggested he should have, that would have saved lives? I think it almost certainly would have. If people had done social distancing earlier, if, if the government itself had said wear masks instead of don't wear masks, Behavior has an effect on the transmission of the disease. That's a fact. 
Another revelation in the Woodward book I want to ask you about, and I'm just reading you directly from the book in the midst of reflecting about how close the United States had come to war in 2017 with North Korea. Trump revealed, quote, I have built a nuclear weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and Xi have never heard about before. There's nobody. What we have is incredible. Do you know what he's referring to? Well, there, there are a lot of things I know about that I'm not going to answer your question on. <laughs> I, I note in one of the stories, uh, I saw some unnamed Defense Department official saying, yeah, we've got that weapon. I'm, I'm really surprised the president leaked it to the press. I, I, think, <laughs> I think the guy must have been laughing behind everybody's backs. There are a lot of things, obviously, that I can't talk about. It is typical of the president's childish approach to these issues that he would say something like that. I've got something so secret, I bet you wish you could you could know what it is, but I'm not gonna tell you. It's unfortunate. He does that with foreign leaders too. It's very unfortunate. Speaking of uh, foreign leaders, I just wanna ask you a quick China question. Trump has uh, been campaigning, saying that Biden is essentially uh, Beijing's candidate in this election, that he's been soft on China. You sat in with meetings uh, with the President Trump and Xi, you uh, report that uh, Trump essentially dismissed the concentration camps uh, where uh, Uyghurs uh, in China have died. Do you think that Biden is soft on China and Trump is tough on China? No, with respect to Biden, obviously, I don't know what his innermost thoughts are. I think the Democratic Party has genetic difficulties being tough with governments like the Soviet Union and China. Maybe that's changed now. Uh, we'll have to see if Biden gets elected. I, I, don't, I don't make any predictions really on that score, although I would say this. I think because of the flu, the virus, and a number of other Chinese activities, opinion about China in the United States is changing and that public opinion generally favors a harder line. Trump, for three years, took a very soft line on China. He's taking a hard line now because he needs to for election purposes, and he's taken some tough measures, sanctions, closing the Chinese consulate in Houston. Uh, I will tell you, I, my view is all of that could change on a dime the day after the election. If Xi Jinping were to call to congratulate him, I could easily see Trump say, look, let's forget all this. Let's get back to negotiating the trade deal of the century, and uh, it would be back to sweetness and light. I'll just say it again. Trump has no philosophy. He has no strategy. He has no policy. It's all about Trump. Once he wins re-election, if that happens, that guardrail is gone, and he is even less constrained in a second term than he would be in a first term. Another story breaking today that involves your successor as national security advisor, Brian Murphy, who's was has been the acting undersecretary for intelligence at DHS, has filed a whistleblower complaint alleging that he was instructed uh, by Chad Wolf, the uh, acting secretary of DHS, to cease providing intelligence assessments on the threat of Russian interference in the United States, instead start reporting on interference activities by China and Iran. Mr. Wolf stated that these instructions specifically originated from White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Your reaction? Well, I hadn't I hadn't seen that story. Obviously, I'm not not up to up. <laughs> just broken the last 20 minutes, Ambassador. <laughs> so I can't I can't speak to the bona fides of it. But I can say if such an order were issued, it would be a catastrophic mistake. Look, we know 
that multiple adverse parties are trying to influence our elections. The intelligence community has stated publicly that the three most significant are China, Russia, and Iran. And I'm sure there are others as well, including non-state actors. It is also a fact the president doesn't like to hear bad things about Putin and Russia. But this is where some of these jobs where you come into the contact, contact with the president become hard. You have to tell him things that he doesn't want to hear. And uh, when you stop being willing to do that, that's a pretty good signal it's time to find another line of work. Ambassador, you've said that uh, you won't be voting for Donald Trump in November because he's incompetent, because of a lot of these other things that you're talking about here and that you wrote in your book. First time in your adult professional life that you have not voted for the Republican nominee. But you've also said that you won't vote for Biden. And you've said you would write in a Republican. Have you changed your position on that at all? Is there any chance you'd vote for Biden? No, and and it's for philosophical reasons. Look, I'm going to be unhappy on election day. I'm probably going to be more unhappy the day after election day. Uh, I don't think Trump is a conservative. I don't think he's competent, and I'm not going to vote for him after 17 months of experience. But but I'm not going to cross philosophical lines to vote for somebody who, based on his record to date, would at best be a repetition of the Obama presidency, and in all likelihood. Uh, given the left, the strength of the left wing of the Democratic Party would be worse. Which candidate would be more dangerous for the United States? I think they'd both be dangerous in different respects. It's an apples and oranges comparison. I, I think I'll probably write in Ronald Reagan. Well, that was going to be my follow-up. <laughs> Who would you write in? I don't know, if he's available. <laughs> well, I don't think he is. But um, in any case, I want to uh, dig a little deep on one episode that you do write about a bit in the book. We are coming up on the second anniversary of the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was writing for the Washington Post. So first of all, just yesterday, the Saudis announced that they uh, sentenced for eight people, but... Clearly, the higher level folks, the uh, deputy intelligence chief Asiri and Saad al-Qahtani were cleared. They were not involved. Agnes Calamard, the U.N. uh, special rapporteur, called this a parody of justice. Do you agree? Well, I think that uh, we don't know the whole story of who ordered and who carried out the, uh, the, the murder of Khashoggi. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think this was a case where Trump very decisively and flatly decided he was going to continue to support uh, the Saudis on a very real politique basis. That's unpleasant to be sure, but we live in an unpleasant world. And uh, for me, the, the correctness of that approach was proven in a meeting I had with Putin in Moscow a short time thereafter, where Putin, all, always in uh, good humor and has a laugh to spare, said, look, if you don't want to sell arms to the Saudis, fine, don't do it. I'll sell them arms. You know, just in in going over your book on this and its recounting, you talk about how after the story breaks on October 8th, Kushner comes in to talk to you about how to uh, respond. And then the two of you call Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And as you write, emphasized how seriously this was, and you urged the crown prince to find out exactly what had happened to Khashoggi and then publish the report. Now, even at that point... There were deep suspicions that the crown prince ordered or sanctioned the murder of this journalist. Did you ask him directly, did you do this? No, I didn't because I hadn't spoken to the president at that point. And I felt what I did say, and uh, Jared was there during the call, and my comment was pretty much as I've reported it, get the full story out, whatever the full story is. 
but it was not for me a, I think, uh, something that I wanted to raise before I knew what direction Trump was going to go in. But as the weeks unfolded and you got the report from the CIA with medium to high confidence that the crown prince did, in fact, order this assassination, was there a point where you confronted him directly about it? Look, I think uh, Trump knew and acted on the assumption that the highest levels of the royal family were involved in it, and he made his decision in any event. And at that point, the, the issue was closed for the rest of us, for Mike Pompeo, for myself. The president had made up his mind. You write in the book, in hard-nosed geopolitical terms, Trump's was the only sensible approach. No one excused Khashoggi's murder, and few doubted it was a serious mistake. But whether or not you'd like Saudi Arabia, the monarch we had significant U.S. national interests at stake. I guess for, you know, some of us when we read that, calling it a serious mistake, is it a mistake is a murder a mistake or a crime? Well, as Talleyrand, the uh, iconic French foreign minister, once said, referring to a particular incident, he said, it's worse than a crime, it's a mistake. So I had Talleyrand in mind. <laughs> okay, as you look back on it today, do you feel that you handled this correctly, that this was the best way to do it. And just one other point here, and this is important. We've learned from a lawsuit just filed in the last couple of weeks by Saad al-Jabri, who was a chief intelligence official of the Saudi government, worked with U.S. officials for years, that within a week of the murder of Khashoggi, a tiger team of assassins was dispatched by MBS to Canada to assassinate him. And that does raise the questions whether turning the, the other cheek or turning a blind eye to what MBS had done in the Khashoggi case basically emboldened him to do similar acts against others. Well, uh, you know, th these are allegations in a different case. It didn't fact it was not anything we knew or had heard of at the time. There were disagreements about the intelligence assessment. But basically, all of this moved very quickly. Trump made up his mind. And, you know, when you're president, uh, you get to do that. Did you accept the intelligence assessment from the CIA? Look, I, th I thought that uh, the assessment was not complete. I think that was a view shared by Mike Pompeo. But as I say, when, when the president makes up his mind, whether he makes it on the basis of an intelligence assessment that you agree with or, or your own opinion or anything else, there wasn't anything further to discuss. discuss. He had moved with surprising speed and uh, foreclosed any further discussion, in effect. I got one other question for the ambassador, which is uh, President Trump is pushing what he what he calls a law and order campaign. He's talking about radical leftist mobs that are you know, going to be burning up American cities and Biden would destroy the suburbs and um, these marauding radicals are coming after you. What do, what do you think of that? Do you agree with him? Well, I don't. But let me just say, uh, since your podcast is called Skullduggery, if there were really skullduggery going on here, I'd say Trump was paying those protesters because every time they go after a statue, every time they throw a device at a courthouse, every time they riot like that, they're helping Trump get reelected. I, I think that proves actually they're Leninists. They must be because they believe, as Lenin said, worse is better. Uh, from their point of view, another four years of Trump would be paradise. I think the campaign Trump is running is a 1968 campaign, but I think it's George Wallace's, not Richard Nixon's. 
Ambassador, a Norwegian parliamentarian has just nominated President Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize, citing the uh, peace deal between uh, the United Arab Emirates and Israel. Your reaction? Well, I have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, (laughs) and I haven't gotten it yet. (laughs) So I wouldn't wait for Trump to get it this year. I I, I have to ask, who nominated you? (laughs) Uh, I think it was a member of the Swedish parliament. My understanding is under the terms of, uh, of Nobel's bequest that parliamentarians in Norway, which actually grants the prize, and Sweden can nominate people to receive it. So if you can find somebody who's been elected to, to one of those two parliaments, you're in like Flint. <laughs> well, that said, uh, the uh, Israeli-UAE deal, what do you make of it? How significant is it? Well, I've, I've written on it. Uh, I think it's, uh, in baseball terms, it's a solid single or double. I think it was decided because of the changed geostrategic environment in the region. I think it is a precursor of other, uh, particularly Gulf Arab states, that uh, will exchange diplomatic recognition with Israel. I think this is largely produced by the threat of Iran, but I think it it will lead to greater stability in the region. So I think it's a plus for them. I think it's a plus for the United States. A big thrust of what you uh, did when you were at the White House was put the focus on Iran. And of course, the United States pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal. The International Atomic Energy Agency just this week reported that Iran's enriched uranium stockpile is now more than 10 times the amount of enriched uranium permitted under that agreement. Uh, Some will look at that and say this shows that what you did and were trying to do simply didn't work and that Iran is now closer to being able to make a nuclear bomb than it was before you pulled out of the agreement. Well, that depends in part on a judgment that the IAEA knows everything that Iran is doing, so that when the IAEA reports on what it can investigate, it is telling the whole story about the Iranian nuclear weapons program, and I have never believed that. And I would say as well, while I think the reimposition of U.S. sanctions did have a material negative effect on Iran's economy, my own personal view was that we weren't going to succeed by simply reimposing the sanctions. I've been clear for as long as I can remember that the only real way to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons is to overthrow the regime. I did want to ask you one question that's been very much in the news. This is the Jeffrey Goldberg article in in The Atlantic. You have said that you do not believe that that Trump disparaged American fallen American soldiers as losers and suckers. But you do report in your book that when that decision was being made, and frankly, throughout that entire trip, that he was Trump was very displeased. It was after the midterm elections that did not go well. I think you quoted Sarah Sanders saying that he was in a royal funk, that John Kelly had to walk him off multiple ledges on the way back on Air Force One, on the way back from Paris. If he was in that kind of a mood, do you foreclose the possibility that at at some moment when you weren't there, he, he wouldn't have said something like that, which he did say publicly in 2015 about John McCain? No, I don't. I don't doubt it at all, and I think I've made it clear in interviews that uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I, what I was, what I wanted to focus on was the fact that the lead point, the tip of the spear of this article, was that he said that when we made the decision not to go to the Enmarn Cemetery, and I wrote it in the book because Trump was roundly criticized at the time for not making that trip. Whatever disparaging remarks he may or may not have made at some other point, and it wouldn't surprise me since he disparages everybody whose last name is not Trump, 
they were not made at the point of that decision. The decision was a pure weather call, and that's it. Trump, Trump also did not say, as he has said in the past few days, I really wanted to go. I protested. I said, you've got to take me. He didn't do that either. And but, by the way, it wasn't raining hard, as he said. I mean, he's made up another story of his own, and that's false, too. It was but, a limited conversation, very uh, operational, and that was it. But, Ambassador, I just want to be clear about this. Let's grant what you're saying, that the decision not to go to Below Woods was because of the weather. But you're saying that you're not saying whether he did or did not say those disparaging things around that time. He could have said those things that you just didn't hear them, right? That's what you're saying. Well, exactly. And and it's it's certainly in character. No, nobody has yet said, oh, that's not the Donald Trump I know. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> One one last question in uh, in rereading your book for this interview. Uh, early on, um, you're talking about uh, the Syrian chemical weapons attack and what the U.S. response is going to be. And at some point in the deliberations, Jared Kushner comes in and says he's just heard from Boris Johnson about what the Brits would participate in in responding to the Syrians. And this clearly took you aback. Why? Why is Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, calling Jared Kushner to relay a key foreign policy decision? What did you make of that? And, you know, and what did you make of Jared Kushner's role inside the White House while you were national security advisor? Yeah, well, Jared's a dilettante. That's that's part of the problem. And uh, this was an example of it. But foreign governments will find ways to get to those around the president who have influence. And this, to me, was an exa- was a clear indication that the national security decision-making process was broken. Now, I was very confident I could fix it. And you can, <laughs> you can read my book and decide whether, whether that happened or not. But uh, I had never cared much about anti-nepotism rules. But I see now a purpose for it in the White House, that you cannot have a functioning decision-making process that can be thorough and really fair to everybody with a stake involved if the president's relatives can run their own parallel process. Hey, one last quick question. Uh, You know, you were involved in litigation with the Justice Department. They claim that you violated, um, you disclosed national security information improperly in the book. And um, while you were the the courts allowed you to proceed with publication of the book. The uh, Justice Department was going to uh, move to take all the profits from your book. So it, it's been a, a a bestseller for some time now. Who's getting the money? Well, I didn't write it to be a tax collector for the government. That's that's for sure. We're, we're still in litigation that could drag on for some time. Look, I didn't uh, write with any intention whatever of disclosing classified information. That's not what I've done for a living uh, as uh, in my professional career. I did go through a four-month-long process, at the end of which the cognizant National Security Council staffer who does that basically as, as her central responsibility Uh, concluded there was no classified information in the book. But because the president of the United States had earlier said publicly that book's not coming out before the election, surprisingly, they then wanted to do a completely separate new process to do it again, which in my estimation would have lasted 
roughly until November the 4th of this year. What do you think? Uh, so we'll, we'll litigate it. Uh, I've written the book for history, and uh, the, the book will be there long after the current actors are gone from the scene. Okay, Ambassador Bolton, I want to thank you for joining us. The book is The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Thanks for being on Skullduggery. Well, thanks for having and I will just say that anybody who uh, quotes both Talleyrand and uh, Vladimir Lenin on Skullduggery is welcome back. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll take you up on it. All right. All right thanks great. very much. You're on. We are now joined by Dr. Lena Wen, former health commissioner of Baltimore and um, professor of public health at George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Wen, welcome back to Skullduggery. Happy to join you as always. So as a public health professional, what is your reaction to hearing the president saying he did not want to level with the American people about the severity of the coronavirus because he didn't want to create panic? Well, I, the first thing that I thought about was my patients. I think about now my patients who lost their lives. I think about the patients I've treated who survived but are living with long-term effects of COVID-19, who now have to be on dialysis, who now may have permanent heart failure, who have had strokes and now cannot move a part of their body or cannot speak as a result. I think about all those individuals who've lost their loved ones. I also think about the physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and EMTs who've gotten infected because they didn't have enough PPE and what it would have meant if they knew, and as they will know, about how this all did not have to happen. And so it's just incredibly distressing and devastating to learn about all of this, because frankly, when you look at what's been hampering our response the entire time, it's the mixed messaging. And part of the commentary around this was, well, maybe the mixed messaging is due to lack of knowledge, or maybe it's due to incompetence. But as it turns out, if this is deliberate, and if it's, there is a deliberate, if there has been a deliberate effort to mislead the American people, and the cost is people's lives, what does that really mean? And just wanted to, to respond to, um, to Mike's question about specifically this issue of panic that President Trump at the White House have said, well, we didn't want to cause panic or we didn't want to have some kind of, of fear as, as, the, as, as the response from the American people. Well, actually, the best antidote to fear is the truth. The best thing and the most important thing that the American people and any people want to know in a time of crisis is the truth. What is actually happening? What do we know? What do we not know? What are we going to do to find this out? What are the actions that the federal government is going to be taking? What are things that each individual person can be doing right now? And it is beyond shameful and so devastating that we, this could have been done, but it was not. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are this is what you do on a daily basis as a as a physician and a public health professional. It seems to me that if you tell people the truth, if you tell them how to mitigate, you give them agency. That is exactly how you calm people down. But I guess the bottom line question is, is, is there any doubt in your mind at all that by withholding information and not leveling with the American people that what President Trump did 
will, uh, cost significant numbers of American lives? Well, we have the research to illustrate this. We have modeling studies done here in the US that show that if we acted even a week sooner, and this is back, we're talking about the stay at home orders in March and April, if we had acted a week sooner, we could have saved 36,000 lives. We have our own counterfactuals in the form of other countries that took prompt action that had a national response, that had a coordinated messaging to the public. And we saw, for example, the case of South Korea that had their first diagnosis of COVID-19, uh, first diagnosed case of COVID-19 the same day that we did, that they have infections and deaths um, that are many, many fold less than ours. They have deaths ranging in the hundreds versus we have them in the hundreds of thousands. We also know that at that time, exactly as you said, that we could have given the American people agency. I mean, I think about, there's so many analogies to this, right? You can imagine if there were a hurricane or tornado that's coming, what you want to do is to tell people there is time. There is time for us to take action. This is how you can protect yourself and your family. Imagine if you find out that the government knew about this impending weather catastrophe, but didn't tell people because they didn't want to, they didn't want to cause panic, but actually people died as a result of that. Where would be the outrage? Or imagine, I mean, I always think in terms of clinical analogies, imagine if a physician didn't want to cause a patient panic and fear, but then withheld an important diagnosis from that patient. And by the time the patient found out, it was too late and that patient was going to die versus if they found out a few months sooner, their lives could have been saved. I mean, imagine that. And that's the equivalent of what's happening here. Uh, Dr. Wen, I, I imagine you had a chance to listen to the tape conversations between Bob Woodward and President Trump. What was going through your mind when you listened to that? What part of that conversation shocked you the most? I think what shocked me the most was that President Trump had a good understanding of the risks and dangers of coronavirus from as early as February 7th, that he had a conversation with President Xi of China, which is already another kind of bizarre moment because it seems like it was, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of blaming of China, but it seems like the Chinese president actually alerted President Trump to the potential dangers. But President Trump was able to recount what these dangers are and was able to articulate that this was something that's more dangerous than the flu, that it could affect young people too, that um, it was airborne and therefore is extremely contagious, that back in end of January, he was warned by his own team that this could be a once in a generation type of dangerous virus and he understood it, could process it and could articulate it back. And so then I think back to um, all these press conferences that President Trump has had since then, where he deliberately, it seems now, downplayed the severity of this virus. And that contrast is so jarring when I think about what could have been done in the meantime. Yeah, that uh, February 7th phone call with Woodward really leapt out at me. Now, I do have to say that I do think it would have been really difficult to persuade the American public in February, when the numbers were so low, to take the kind of socially distance restrictions and lockdowns and all the other requirements that would have been necessary, it would have, it would have been difficult to, to get the American public on board when so few cases had been reported in the United States. But that said, when you look at that February 7th phone call, where 
Trump is telling Woodward, this is more deadly than even your strenuous flu. This is deadly stuff, which is precisely the opposite of what he was saying to the public. Five times more. I mean, he said five times more deadly, didn't he? Um, but I mean, that, you know, and, and on that same day, he's tweeting to the world, I'm the, you know, the, the coronavirus would disappear, you know, when the weather starts to warm. And on March 7th, he's saying, no, I'm not concerned at all. It's that it's that dichotomy of saying privately to Woodward, he thinks it's private because it's for a book that isn't going to come out for a while. You know, hey, this is really deadly stuff while telling the public, don't worry, it's all going to go away. That's right. And I'll give you that same analogy for a weather catastrophe. Imagine if the president or a governor or some other leader knew about this impending catastrophe and is saying this, acknowledging this in some private setting, but not letting people know whose lives would be directly affected and who could do something about it. I mean, this is this is not a storm that's going to hit us no matter what, and we're all going to die. I mean, this is something that we could actually prevent by taking steps. I do think that you make a good point about how difficult it would have been to get the American people on board early on when we didn't yet have diagnosed cases and no deaths in the U.S. That's true. But for two things. One is that the federal government could have then taken that time to prepare. And arguably, had we gotten our testing capacity up from the very beginning, the way that South Korea and many other countries did, we probably may not have even needed these dramatic shutdowns the way that we did eventually. We had to have these shutdowns at the point that we did because we had so much community spread and not nearly enough testing, we couldn't rein it in. If we had the testing, maybe we didn't need those shutdowns in the first place. But the other thing too is because the president consistently downplayed the severity of the infection, the American people were left wondering, what do I do now? Who do I listen to? Is this even so serious? I mean, we are seeing something as basic as masks, as you both know it, as we've talked about being politicized. And so I think that is key to all of this, that we actually still have a chance to turn this around. And I hope, I, I'm not sure that this will happen, but I do hope that the president takes this opportunity now. And instead of defending his own past action says, and maybe this is a crazy wild dream that this could occur, but I hope y'all say now that here's where we are. This is extremely serious. Whatever happened in the past happened in the past, but here's what we can do moving forward and let science and public health finally lead. What is your assessment of where we are now? The numbers have come down in the last few weeks from where they were in July, those spikes we saw in a lot of states, not nearly as they haven't come down nearly as much as we'd all like, but the curve at the moment seems to be headed in the right direction. How much comfort should we take from that? And I guess, you know, politically, because we're a political show, where are we going to be at in late October when people are going to be making their final decisions about who they're going to vote for? Yeah, great question. So I don't think that we're in a good place at all. The numbers may look like we've trended down from a truly terrible place, um, which is 60,000, 70,000 new infections a day. But we are at 40,000 new infections a day. This is double where we were over Memorial Day when reopening first occurred. And as you recall, we had a huge surge of cases after reopening. Well, now businesses are reopened, 
now universities are back. Now tens of millions of school kids are back to in-person instruction. So you have all of these factors together on top of Labor Day that just occurred. And many people were, with the number of people traveling over Labor Day is much higher than over the past holidays. And on top of that, we're now coming into colder weather where it's going to be harder to be outdoors rather than indoors. And we don't have any idea what it's going to be like over the flu season, if we're really going to be seeing the twindemics, so to speak, of the cold and flu um, and, um, and COVID-19 all together and what the combination of all these respiratory pathogens is going to look like. And so I think it would be foolhardy for us to think that we're in a good place. We expect to see a surge in cases in the coming weeks. Come October, frankly, I really don't know. Um, I think if it's anything that we've learned over the course of this pandemic, it's that we have to be humble in the face of this virus. Best case scenario, maybe because of all the protections that we put into place, maybe we'll have less flu and less respiratory virus than we did in past, in past years. And maybe this won't be so bad. But I also think it's possible that quarantine fatigue will have set in, that we won't have nearly enough testing to sort out what is the flu, what is COVID. Parents and teachers and people working will understandably be hesitant to stop working and stop sending their kids to, to school should outbreaks occur there as they are. And we could be in a much worse place heading to 300,000, maybe even more deaths at that point. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, there's been a lot of modeling about the impact um, in terms of fatalities of a of a second wave or of a or of a really serious surge in cases. You think um, we're talking, um, you know, going into the sort of the dead of winter, up to three hundred thousand cases, even more than that. I mean, what is your worst case scenario, and what is your best case scenario in terms of deaths? Well, the University of Washington's model, um, which I think is an important one um, that uh, the Trump administration and many others have looked at, although I will say that it's proven to be a more conservative measure um, in that the actual numbers have exceeded the models thus far, but they're predicting 400,000 deaths by the end of the year. And that's given the trajectory that we're currently on. If we have universal masking, if 95% of people abide by mask mandates, we could be at 300,000 deaths. If, on the other hand, we go in the opposite direction and, and loosen our restrictions further, we could be at 600,000 deaths. And I think what that should tell us is that none of this is fixed in stone. These projections are just what they are. They are our best guesses based on our current behavior, but that that behavior can be modified. And You're talking about by the, by the end of 2020, 21 or by the 2020 by the end of 2020 i know these are staggering numbers they're difficult to hear and difficult to say that we could be at nearly well, more than double the number of deaths than we are at now and i think again just a reminder of how deadly this disease is but also how much what we do now really matters uh very quickly likelihood of a vaccine by the end of the year it depends on what we mean by a vaccine. I mean, we have various vaccine candidates in trial now. Could there be something approved for emergency use authorization for healthcare workers? Best case scenario, maybe, small likelihood of that. But if we're talking about distributing the vaccine to millions of Americans by the end of this year, that's not going to happen. What's the earliest you think it could? Earliest, we could have approval by the by early next year, but by the but there's a big difference between approval and then manufacturer distribution. And also remember that these vaccines require two doses. So by the time people get both doses, we could be looking at yet um, much later on in 2021. 
Best case. Well, that's not that's not good news for any of us who are hoping to have our children back in school this year uh, instead of sitting in front of computer screens. And for all those workers who are not employed, um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of um, uh, room for optimism there. But um, Dr. Wen, I appreciate your uh, we appreciate your candid comments as always. And thanks again. And we will definitely have you back as this unfolds. Thank you so much. Nice to join you both.